you can't sort of buy the right tools to be data-driven or whatever, like they can help you. But really it's about having that kind of mindset about asking questions, about being curious about the answers, about trying to connect dots, you know, being willing to sort of see if you're right or wrong on stuff. Data just is gonna tell you different things and it's gonna look different in different perspectives. And I think you have to work really hard for people not to look at something and say, this is telling me two different things, therefore I don't trust anything. Welcome to The Right Track, a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering, product, and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best product for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform, changing how developers, product managers, and data scientists collaborate to plan, track, and govern their product analytics. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. In this episode, I spoke with Ben Stansel. Ben is the chief analyst and co-founder of Mode, a product for data analysts and data scientists. He and his co-founders were all on the data team at Yammer, where they built internal tools to create analyses and quickly share with their coworkers. When Yammer was acquired by Microsoft in 2012, the Microsoft team started adopting their tools as well. From there, they discovered that most other leading Silicon Valley companies had built the same things. So they started Mode. Ben wears many hats as Mode's chief analysts from working with the internal data teams at Mode to working with the community, knowledge sharing on anything data and supporting analysts and building data strategies. One of his first contributions to Mode was kicking out their blog. And fun fact, his first blog post was a data-driven look at Miley Cyrus and the VMAs. I love that. As two founders of data products, we naturally went deep. We talked about the shift from vertical to horizontal data tools, why you won't get self-serve analytics by buying a tool, just like you won't get self-serve design by buying Figma, and advice for kickstarting a data team. Listen in for even more insights on building data cultures. Hi, Ben. Welcome to The Right Track. Great. Thanks to be here. Could you kick us off by telling us a little bit who you are, what you do, and how you got there? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I'm Ben. I am one of the founders of a company called Mode. So Mode builds a product for data analysts and data scientists to be able to create analysis and quickly share it out with, with their coworkers. So I'm, as I said, one of Mode's founders, and my title is Mode's chief analyst. Uh, so I spend most of my time doing a handful of things. One is working actually with our data team internally, so how we think about sort of doing data ourselves. So it's sort of a very meta job of like doing the analysis to build a tool to help people do analysis but also do a lot of work with folks in the community to kind of understand what it is that, that analysts are trying to do, the problems they have, you know, where the space is going, things like that. We want to be receptive to the problems that our customers have, the problems that sort of the market has, where we think that's all going, and making sure we're building the right stuff for folks like that. Uh, and it sort of goes beyond, I think, just the product itself. Obviously, you know, a lot of people who are in data, uh, it's a very sort of community-oriented industry, and credit to a number of folks who've, who've really built that. And so we want to make sure we're, we're helpful in ways that go beyond just saying, hey, here's a product. A lot of people are trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with data? What's the right way of making it valuable? That kind of stuff. Um, and we want to try to be, be helpful in those ways as well. That is awesome. So very diverse role, both internal data culture things, mm -hmm. but also just giving back to the community, helping your customers and the community be better with data. Uh, yeah, giving back is generous. Uh, I'm sure that some people would, would say that mostly... 
not, not sure how valuable the contributions are, but doing our best. I can at least speak for myself that I love your blog posts. You are a great writer and you have a wonderful writing style, a mix of opinions with sort of poetic sprinkles on there. Um, so I appreciate everything that you do. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But so, I mean, you are chief analyst. Did you say that? Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, you go by chief analyst at Mode. How did you get there? Uh, how did I get to that title or how did we get to Mode? Both. The, well, the title's the easy one. When you start a company, you can make up whatever title you want. Um, <laughs> and chief analyst isn't really a title you'll find in many places. But there's a little bit of a, a funny background for what I first started doing. We started Mode, which is it was three of us. So our CEO, who is the more personable version of Mode's founder set, and the one who was out in the early days, you know, talking to investors, talking to potential customers. He was the person who made sense as kind of the the face of Mode. Um, and then we had a a founding engineer who started building the product and, and was the person who was basically responsible for making sure we actually had something to, to show people. And me, as a person with a background in analysis, didn't have a whole lot to do. So we made up a title and made up a job. Uh, and my job prior to having customers was mostly kind of what you alluded to, which was which was writing blog posts. So at that time, it was mostly writing blog posts about anything that was related to data, not necessarily related to data technology. So if you actually go back, the the, the very first blog post on Node site, which is still there, is a blog post on Miley Cyrus and the VMAs. <laughs> so, so that was my first six months at Node was, was writing blog posts about pop culture. Eventually, it evolved into doing a lot more customer-facing work, um, doing things like customer support, customer success, working in the product organization, doing our own internal analysis once we actually had data to analyze, a lot of things like that. But in the early days, it was writing blog posts on the internet. But for, for where Mode came from, so, so the background for Mode is the three of us uh, all worked together at a company called Yammer, which was bought by Microsoft in 2012. We were all on the data team, and Yammer was, Yammer was sort of one of the early cloud enterprise companies. It was early in this consumerization of IT type of wave. The product itself was, was very similar to, say, something like Slack. It was actually more or less a clone of Facebook for work. This was prior to Facebook for work existing, but it was kind of the idea of like, not Facebook for work TM, but like Facebook for work. But we, the way that the sort of software development happened because it was a cloud product and, and things like that was more oriented towards the way that, that consumer products got built. And particularly, we tried to model a lot of things we did after, say, things like gaming, social gaming, which was big at the time, which was a very data-oriented, how are our users using products? What are they doing? How can we make better products because of that? That kind of stuff. So we worked on the data team that was responsible for helping people around the organization make decisions based on that. And to do that, we actually had to build a number of internal tools to help ourselves do our jobs. Um, that the primary data tools at the time, there were a lot of sort of code-forward tools, but they were the old school stuff like SAS or or Stata or things like that, or R Studio, uh, which were good for us as analysts, but weren't particularly good for any of the business users we're actually trying to work with. And if we wanted to use something that was designed for those business users, Tableau was kind of the state of the art at that point, but it was constraining to us as analysts, that we as, as analysts and data scientists were trying to ask kind of richer questions than you could with, with something like Tableau. And so we ended up building a set of internal tools to let us basically quickly work with data in the data warehouse, do analysis on top of it, build visualizations and share it out to, to other people in ways that they could reuse it. That internal tool looked very similar to a sort of basic ugly version of mode. It was like at its core, the the kind of same idea of write a SQL query, you get a chart, send it over a URL. At the time when we were building it, we were kind of like, 
hey, we're special. We're a data team that thinks about these things in different ways, that kind of stuff. Over time, we started to realize that the problems we were solving for ourselves were actually problems that a lot of other people had. Um, that a lot of companies around Silicon Valley had built similar tools. So Facebook had a version, Airbnb had a version, Spotify had a version, Pinterest had a version, all these had like these kind of online query tools with visualizations. We also saw that the product was getting adopted by by Microsoft once we got acquired by Microsoft and people realized, hey, this is a really quick way to share data and, and insight. So once we kind of started to realize that, we said, hey, if, if this is a problem that, that all these companies are building their own versions of it, then maybe there's a market for us to build a product that really solves this problem. And, and at its core, that problem was there's analysts and data scientists whose job isn't to just build basic reporting and their job isn't to sit in a room and build complicated models all day. Their job is to help business stakeholders make decisions by asking complicated questions and answering them with the kind of technical tools that are required to do that. And so we said, okay, like let's, let's build some tools that enable that workflow for, for analysts. And so that was kind of the first version of Node was, okay, analysts need to answer questions, share them quickly. How do we help them do that? And over time, it's built on to being able to do a lot more than that. But that's, that thesis is still kind of the core of what Node is. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And it actually sparked this one concept that I was recently introduced to by a member of the DBT community. She's a community uh, manager in DBT. Um, she calls it purple people. And it's this concept where it stitches. So there are red people and there are blue people and they speak technology and business. And then you need the purple people that sort of translate between those two. And it sounds like you're sort of describing that. It's like, you need a bridge between those sort of two roles, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And and there's, you know, I think if you read like the Harvard Business Review stuff, they have all these sort of fancy terms like data translators or whatever. But yeah, that's that is an effect where mode sits. And sort of you see this in the tool where it, it kind of has two sides where there's a technical side and a non-technical or or sort of more consumable side, really. That ultimately that's what data to me is, is it's it is not really a technical thing necessarily, but it's something where we've also often put some technical barriers in front of being able to actually access it and interpret it. But you have to have an understanding of how to actually do that with data plus an understanding of the business problem. And there are some people that can do both. There are some of these purple people that, that can straddle <laughs> that line. But in reality, what you really need is people who understand the data and then people who really understand the business. That The more you understand the business, the better questions you're going to ask, the better you're going to be able to see something and be like, hey, this doesn't look right. And so you have to actually have a way to bring those people together, that it, it can't just be an analyst doing something and throwing it over a wall any more than you can have like a data scientist build something and say, hey, here it is, here's my conclusions, we're done. Like you need to have that that collaboration because it's the it's the marketer, it's the salesperson, it's the CEO, it's the whoever else that understands this is what this problem actually is. This is how I would interpret this data. This is what we would expect to see. This is what looks weird. All those sorts of things you're not going to get unless you live in that world and analysts for the most part aren't able to live in that world. Yeah, exactly. I have a section on the right track where I, I love talking about org structures and sort of the, you know, where, where the data team should sit. So I definitely look forward to diving a little bit deeper into that later in the episode. Mm-hmm. And so basically you started on this journey with a passion for data, with analytics, you were working on analytics, and then you scratched your own itch building internally. And now we have mode. More or less. We built a tool to solve our own problems, very much so at Yammer. was just like, this is the way we want to do our jobs. Um, and then Node came around as a way to say, hey, you know, let's solve our own problems, but for other people and see how it goes. And that's more or less the path that we've been on for a number of years now at this point. Yeah, super exciting. 
and a lot of people are strong mode advocates. I am supposing that that is very rewarding. We don't get tired of hearing that. That's always nice to hear. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your backstory. To kick us off into sort of the data world, Mm -hmm. thinking a little bit in depth about how to use data, why would we use data? Can you tell us an inspiring data story and a frustrating data story? So the this is like a, a relatively small story in the scheme of things for for like an inspiring data story. I think you could you know you could draw from a bunch of things where it's like Instagram was about to fail and they looked at their data and they figured out this thing and they pivoted to being Instagram from they originally like I think a risky sharing app or something like that and they really like sharing <laughs> yeah. great good for them uh, that's cool I, the, the, the story though from a a mode customer that I've always really liked partly because it's just like a it's the sort of thing that's like this unexpected discovery that ends up leading to something that's pretty cool. So there's a company called The Knot. So The Knot is a website that a lot of people don't necessarily know about, but have probably used. They host wedding websites. And so if you like have a friend who's getting married, they have a wedding website with like, here's pictures and directions and registries and stuff like that. It's, you know, it's like beckylovesjosh.com or whatever. Those are often hosted on The Knot. And so he was an analyst or running a data team at The Knot, and they just launched a mobile app that was basically the same thing for sort of managing your wedding. And when they first launched the app, it wasn't particularly popular. They were struggling to get much traction with it. It wasn't something that was taken off. And so they put a bunch of money into investing into building it, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And at some point, this analyst started playing around with like the product data to basically say, okay, well, let's just see what people are doing. Let's try to figure out what's going on in this thing. And he discovered this pattern where there were most people weren't using the app very much, but there was this kind of small segment of people that were using the app all the time, but they were only using one page on it. And so he ended up building this visualization that basically showed people's paths through the app. Uh, and you can see this one like spike on the side. It's this kind of small sliver, but it's everybody just going like this page, this page, this page, this page, this page. And it's the same page, you know, every single time. And so they started digging into it to really see what it was. And what they discovered was the page that they were going to was a page that was a countdown until the wedding. <laughs> so it would be like, you know, 27 days of the wedding, 26 days of the wedding, whatever. And what they realized was that people were going to that page, taking a screenshot of it, and then posting it on Instagram or, or somewhere else. And so this was like a kind of afterthought of a thing I think they added to the app. They're like, sure, whatever, a lot of countdown, it's easy to build, no big deal. Well, all these other features that are much more important for managing your guest list or updating pictures or whatever. But they realized this particular thing was the thing that was really sticky. And so they ended up kind of adjusting the entire app to lean into that where it was a much more prominent feature on that page that was like looked much nicer where the screenshot would be much nicer. You can more easily post it to like directly to Instagram, stuff like that. And ended up like turning around the app in a lot of ways by orienting it around this kind of one latent behavior that they had never thought about. Uh, and certainly didn't like build the app for, but by actually following the the way that people were using it, they could figure out a way to make this app much more successful. And I think it's a cool story because it's like, it's obviously, again, it's not a huge thing. It's not some world changing thing, but it's the kind of thing that just by kind of being curious about how people are using it, by asking questions you may not necessarily have thought of initially, you can find all of these interesting discoveries, some of which may be just kind of interesting curiosities, but some of which can also be the kinds of things that like, turn around an entire project or an entire business. That is a really great story. Do you know or have any insights, maybe you can't even share it, on like the results of the change? So I can share a blog post about this, actually. So they wrote a blog post uh, about this. It was 
part of the bigger project was they had implemented segment and mode to look at this product usage data. Prior to that, they hadn't really used a whole lot. I think they'd used something like Omniture before, um, which wouldn't have been able to allow them to track some of the stuff that they were finding. And so they wrote a blog post about this on Segment's blog that I can try to find. Um, I don't remember specifically the lift was X or whatever, but but it was the thing I think where like the app was went from maybe being a failed project to a success hmm. because of this being able to to lean into this behavior. Intuitively, I would have thought it that this probably both impacted the stickiness and the retention of the app and conversion to using those parts of the app and then the virality mm-hmm. i can imagine like making it so much easier to share stuff directly from this app that's amazing it actually reminds me of a quiz up story where uh, so quiz up is a mobile game uh, i used to be the founding analyst there and we people would compete in really specifically niche or very generic trivia categories and we had like thousands of categories all the way from like general knowledge to like Canadian leaves and people would be able to be best in the world in specific things. And we saw people were like, we learned exactly by looking at the data that this is the thing that really helped virality. And so we increased the number of titles that you could gain and how frequently you could gain them. And that like super, that was really impactful in like virality of the app. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting in these products, how much of this kind of stuff seems to emerge. So many companies have stories like this. Again, some of them are, are meaningful and some of them are less so, but about we built a product this way, we thought it was going to be used this way. Turns out everybody just wanted to do this. And all these little things that as you're designing products, you can kind of never predict uh, exactly how people end up using it and, and kind of the, the patterns that end up emerging, regardless of how much you design it to be like, do this. It's like people are going to kind of find things that they like to do and, and do it the way they want to do it. Exactly. And what I love about this data story is, so that journey that you're describing, it's so important to have, like good product teams will have a mix of qualitative and quantitative to make these discoveries. And what I love about this story is like how quantitative led them to this path, which is really interesting. Often it's the other way around, but quantitative definitely can help you discover things like this. So Mm -hmm. great story. Thank you for sharing, Ben. For sure. Can you talk a little bit about the frustrations? some frustration example of a data bug or around data? So I don't have like a specific story. I, I think that, and especially like the, the product data, the thing to me that is the most frustrating is when you're missing something and it's like, you're missing 10% of your data and it's probably random, but probably not quite. Like the almost but not quite random errors are the things that are, like the end, it, it ruins everything basically because you're kind of tempted to say, well, okay, we can probably just use the data that we have, but it's possible that the reason that we don't have some of this stuff is because it was this particular type of people. So for instance, this happens a lot on, on web tracking data that we've seen where say you have something like segment instrumented, you're doing a bunch of front end logging. Okay, you're going to miss people who have like ad trackers. You can kind of sort of assume that people who use ad trackers are random, but if you're a product like Mode, which is a kind of technical product that tilts towards people that are analysts and engineers, there's probably some bias in who actually uses an ad tracker versus who doesn't. Like I suspect that sort of the more technical types of folks are a little bit more inclined to use ad trackers. I don't know that, but they're the people who probably are a little bit more like willing to futz around JavaScript consoles and say, I don't want this thing and I want this thing and that sort of stuff. So like, what do you do with that? That now you're, you're tracking 90% of your usage, you're missing 10%. There is some bias in it that you can't quite figure out that you're tempted to just say, well, let's just treat it like a random sample, but you can't really like, 
it's a hole to solve problems, but it's also something where it's, it's not bad enough that you have to throw everything out, but it's not really good enough that you can always trust it. And so I don't really know what you do. Like, you know, you, you try to figure out other, other ways to track things. You try to figure out other ways, like confirm the things that you've seen and say, okay, let's try this from a different angle or whatever. But it's this not quite bad enough to be really bad, but not quite good enough to sort of just trust without too much question. Yeah, that's a really good point. And particularly with like when you have specific audiences that are more likely to have ad trackers. I, we have a couple of customers like that at Avo. And I also recently had an analyst from Netlify, which is also like very developer, basically web developers. <laughs> they're they're going to be like, nope, yeah. don't track me. Nope. But one thing around that I find really interesting, which is so the discussion on like, why do people not want to be tracked? I feel like sort of the world splits into a few groups. It's the people that just want Google to know everything about you so that they have faster search results and all those things. Or they want to have relevant ads because they find good things that way. And then there's the other extreme end, which is just like potentially people who grew up in countries where government monitoring was a real threat. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of intrinsic in the culture of the country. Um, and so that would be at the other end of the spectrum where like, you might even have pushback against like going cashless, mm -hmm. you know, um, because you always then have a paper trail of everything that you've been doing as a citizen. And so I find it so interesting to think about, you know, I, I think GDPR is a huge, huge step forward in this direction. Uh, but what are your thoughts on like, why do people not want to be tracked? Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I, th I think that most people's reasons for it are the reasons that they should be worried about it. Like, I think what you're saying is probably right, that most people's reasons for it is is some sense of this is invasive, people are going to do nefarious stuff with it, the government's going to put trackers in my vaccine, all that sort of stuff. And like, I, I think, sure, and in some places, that is probably something to be worried about. And, and, you know, the NSA, for instance, probably is doing more tracking than they probably should. But I think for the most part, the nefariousness of companies that are doing this sort of tracking is kind of overstated. The bigger problem and the problem I don't think that people are as aware of is just the clumsiness of it. It's less to me about like, hey, somebody's going to do this and they're going to figure out all this stuff about me. And they're going to look up everywhere I've been and, and someone's like watching me. It's like there is too much data to be collected for you to be watched or anybody really know what to do with that. But in practice, like a lot of data is just getting logged, dumped into warehouses. It's kind of in ways that nobody actually can access it or, or can, everybody can access it, but nobody can like knows exactly how it is. Like it, it's not well stored and, and sort of precisely monitored. I think that there's, there is some concern about like, oh, this is a bunch of like really tight technologies that are trying to figure out exactly everything I'm doing. In practice, it's sort of the opposite. It's just like a giant mess. And the danger to me is stuff gets exposed because it's all a giant mess that, that people lose, not people are trying to do something that that's particularly nefarious. I like, I think I've always wondered if you are like an aerospace engineer, if when you're on an airplane, if you're like, it is remarkable that this thing flies or if you're like, oh, of course it flies. It makes total sense. Like there's no way this thing could ever fall out of the sky. <laughs> but if you're an engineer or a data person, most of the time when you see data stuff or technology, your response is kind of, it's remarkable that this thing works. <laughs> yeah. that this is glued together so much more with like, rubber bands and popsicle sticks and anybody realizes. And I think that's a lot of the danger of, of like the tracking infrastructure sort of at a macro level is the whole thing is pretty flimsy and it's not well governed in like a macro sense, not in sort of the data governance in a company sense in a way that 
it's just kind of a mess. And I think that that potentially has real problems, but it's not a problem of, of yeah, somebody is so like knows this exactly well, how to do all this. And it's all so precisely managed that people are watching you. It's like, for the most part, people don't know how to watch you. Somebody is watching you and it's recorded on a machine somewhere, but in general, nobody can actually figure out what it means because it's all tracked poorly and they lose it all the time. And like, that's one of the reasons that Evo exists is companies are watching you, but they don't know what to do with it or they can't interpret it. So that is its own problem, but it's a different problem, I think, than, than the typical nefarious, you know, someone spying on me type of problem. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, the, the story that you just shared with The Knot, I think, sheds a light on the value of analytics for the end user. And that's something that I am personally passionate about is like at a certain maturity stage at a company, developers, product developers, product engineers will see the sort of tracking instrumentation task, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. as a task to be done that has no value for the end user. But it is remarkable what happens to the data culture of a company when developers start seeing analytics as a part of their process to build a good product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and users too. And I think that's something we'll we'll eventually figure out a a way to sort of do it safely. But take TikTok, for instance. I mean, if TikTok didn't track what you did, nobody would use it because the whole point, like the whole way that TikTok works is basically by understanding what you do and just feeding you more of that. No, no, that that is independent of sort of the China question, which I don't know very little about. Obviously, that's somewhat of a different thing. And it's also not to say that like TikTok as a whole is good for society or whatever, but as a user of it, if they were like, we're actually going to turn off tracking, people would be like, well, now this app is trash. Yeah. And so, you know, I think you find yourself, I think, in a position where you're like, well, don't track me, but I want the benefits of it. Exactly. I think there probably will be at some point, somebody will figure out ways to do that such that they can say, they can stand on somewhat of a soapbox and say, hey, we are tracking you in a way that we don't actually know all these things about you. Like, look at, this is the, the equivalent of selling the, like Jessica Alba had her like house products that were made with clean stuff or whatever that people sort of buy because they feel like it's sort of morally better to do it. I can see technology and data tracking having something of that sort where it's like, don't worry, you're not gonna have to sacrifice anything in the product, but also you'll be able to feel good using this product because we have all these things in place to make sure you're safe. I mean, the counterexample of that is like, nobody seems to want to use DuckDuckGo, but uh, maybe we'll get there. Yeah, totally, exactly. Yep, we jotted some things down on like, what is the most common ways that your analytics break? Do you have any thoughts on that? So it's usually not technology. All these complaints about tracking aside, like that's actually the, the easier problem to solve. And in a lot of cases, those aren't actually really broken as much as just you have to accept some certain level of imperfection. The ways that things more often break for us and for, it seems like for the folks that we talk to, are kind of unexpected edge cases. And a lot of times, unexpected edge cases that are legitimate, but things that you just don't know how to deal with. So particularly on the business side, I think products is actually okay. Like a lot of product analytics, because it's all sort of machine generated, crazy stuff happens. But there's a certain level of like, it's only going to be so crazy when you're dealing with stuff like like contract data or human inner data or like data that comes from Salesforce. People do all sorts of things. Like you'll sign a contract that looks unlike any other contract you've ever signed. That usually they're one-year contracts. And this is like a three-year contract with this extra kicker after a year and a half that has some built-in contract structure so that it's automatically going to go up. But then if they don't hit this certain usage threshold, it'll actually churn like you could write all sorts of things into that. And now you've got to figure out how do we compute our revenue based on this thing. And you have to somehow translate a, a hard enough to understand English version of that contract into like 
business logic that your analytic systems can understand. And that happens all the time, where there's things like that, where you're trying to translate confusing concepts and stuff into some sort of, okay, this is the way that a computer can understand it. And that translation process is often messy. Mm-hmm. There's like, these YouTube videos of elementary school teachers teaching kids how to program a computer. And they'll say, okay, I'm going to make like, a peanut butter jelly sandwich. How do I make it? And they'll say like, put the peanut butter on the sandwich. And so they take the can of peanut or jar of peanut butter and just put it directly on the bread. And it's like, oh no, <laughs> you know, open the jar of peanut butter and put the knife in it. And they put the knife in the wrong way. <laughs> and so it's like, you have to be so expressive of exactly what these things are. And a lot of the kind of business logic that you're actually trying to express is hard to express that way. It's hard to express that precisely. And so when you're trying to actually build analytics on those sorts of things, they're very fragile to, oh, we're not actually eating peanut butter out of a jar. Now we bought peanut butter out of a, I don't know what else peanut butter comes in, out of like <laughs> one of those gogurt tubes. Uh, I'm sure that someone tells one of those. Or, you know, we don't have a knife anymore. We've now just got a spoon. Like suddenly all of these things start to get weird and it's the things that you thought covered, it doesn't work. Yeah. And so I, that introduces all sorts of things that will just like be fragile not fragile because like you didn't build a good system or because your infrastructure is bad, but fragile because you're trying to translate complicated concepts into code effectively. And those complicated concepts are, are things that are kind of constantly shifting. Yeah, I think that's a really spot on thing. So it sort of reminds me of a discussion that I have very commonly, which is the concept of you know whether you should over-instrument everything and just have and just log everything that happens in the app and then try to figure out afterwards how you stitch those things into information or whether you should try to be deliberate upfront and design your data structures and design your metrics based on where the information is coming from, which system is coming from, what's available. So I think what you're sort of touching on is a personal passion of mine, which is data design is a really important thing to get right when you are, for example, instrumenting analytics that you're going to be sending into a database and then building some insights on top of that. I agree with that with a caveat that it's it's important to design the system, but I think a lot of times that can get interpreted into designing everything. So here is the way that we're going to design our event instrumentation. Here is the, the system we're going to use for it to then turning that into, okay, now let's write down everything we're going to track and let's all make, like, let's have the perfect sort of tracking plan for everything and then we'll start to do stuff with it. I think you need to have a flexible system, but it's often better to say, okay, now let's start putting stuff in it and seeing what happens. Like you need a foundation to work off of, but you shouldn't build the entire thing before you start to live in the house. This analogy makes no sense, but you get the idea of like- I totally agree with that, yes. Start small is basically- Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a habit, particularly in big companies that are doing the sort of digital transformation thing they're used to things taking a long time. It's This is going to be a three-year project. The first year is us just doing research. The second year is us writing a plan. The third year is us implementing everything. <laughs> After year three, we're going to have everything perfect and everything's going to be super valuable. And it never works. There, You lose like momentum on the project. Executives get tired of trying to sponsor the thing because it hasn't delivered anything for two years. Uh, the business changes over the course of that time. So your like, perfect tracking plan from two years ago now doesn't make any sense because you've actually deprecated the product uh, and replaced it with something else. And so... It's just like run the thread end to end as fast as you can. And ideally think about how do we do this in a way that's not going to lock us into one very like precise way of doing this, but run the thread and then start to build on top of it instead of this like, let's build this very big kind of pyramid that takes us forever to get to. 
I could not agree more with this. Um, and I think I would love to maybe dive a little bit deeper into this later in the episode for recommendations for how teams should get started with their analytics. Cool. But I couldn't agree more. I just start small is such an important run it end to end. Absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing frustrating and inspiring data stories. Set the stage a little bit. I would love to move a little bit from there into thinking about the how the industry has been changing. In your opinion, how has the industry changed in the last two years? Or if you want to go further back or shorter? Yeah, I mean, I think the big macro shift is things moving to the cloud. That the data tooling from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was a bunch of desktop stuff. It was a bunch of on-prem stuff. It was you having to host your own Oracle databases and things like that. The shift to moving things to the cloud and cloud warehouses, cloud data tooling, cloud ETL tools, all that sort of stuff, had a number of consequences. It, it has a consequence of making things way more accessible, both within organizations and across them. So it used to be that the only people who really could do analytics beyond just putting something to Excel were people who could afford a million-dollar Teradata data installation or could afford Oracle or SAP or could afford you know a whole bunch of infrastructure to do this, plus the people required to manage that infrastructure, plus the people required to actually like use the data to make any use of it. And so the investment at that point is huge. And so you're only trying to do really important stuff with it. You have to like justify that investment in some way. If you're a small company, you can't really do anything with it. The shift to the cloud made all that stuff way cheaper. It made it cheaper to store data. It made it cheaper to, to actually do anything with it. So now companies can, like any company can spin this stuff up in really a matter of hours and for almost free. There's a lot of free tools out there. Um, tools like Redshift and stuff like and BigQuery are relatively inexpensive uh, at certain scales. So the big shift, really, I think the, the big fundamental thing is this is now way more accessible to a lot of people. It's not sort of just that the very big companies have a whole armies of people who are responsible for doing this. It's like this is now a, a kind of way to run a business. That's the 10-year ten year shift, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's very much over over kind of the long term. The, the shorter term thing, I think, is the, the modern data stack. And, and there's a lot of conversation about like, what does that mean? And, and everybody kind of has roughly the same ideas. Part of it is cloud stuff. To me, the bigger shift, like the, the kind of architectural change that this has brought about is we have shifted from being a vertically oriented stack to a horizontally oriented one. That the way that a lot of product teams, for instance, used to do product analytics was with tools like Mixpanel or Google Analytics or Amplitude. Sales teams would do things in Salesforce or, or whatever uh, CRM they had. Marketing teams would use tools like HubSpot or Marketo. There are BI tools, but BI tools were kind of monolithic in the sense that they would be responsible for ingestion, for data storage, for visualization. If you were using a tool like Click, Click is kind of the full stack of, of everything. We've turned that on its side. So now tools are basically solving a horizontal problem across the entire business, but solving just one part of it. So there's ETL tools that are ingesting data from everywhere, but they're ingesting it across the entire business. So it's like Fivetran or Stitch or whoever else is reading data from Salesforce and from Marketo and from Zendesk and from Intercom and from Asana and from all these different places and GitHub and like putting it into a centralized place. You have one centralized warehouse or data lake or whatever you want to call it that's sort of the centralized place of storing data. You have single transformation tools that are kind of unified sources of governance. Avo in some ways is a representation of that. It's obviously more product-oriented, but it represents a kind of, this is your tracking plan governance, essentially, that can be not just across, we're not just tracking the mobile app or we're not just tracking like this bigger product, we're tracking the whole thing. Analytics tools tend to serve everything, so mode is a part of that, but other analytics and BI tools tend to be very horizontal. 
There's now monitoring and observability tools that tend to be horizontal. So that does a number of things. A couple of the big changes is it means that people can, can pick and choose best-in-class tools. So instead of us having to say, okay, well, we choose Amplitude or we choose Click and we have to use one or the other, you can use a tool that's the best-in-class tracking. You can use a tool that has the best-in-class storage. So it allows people to build sort of much better stacks, basically. The other part of that, I think, that that is a, a big change is it lets the business actually work. Like data becomes less departmentalized and more sort of cross-business. So, you know, we're trying to answer questions about how the sales team is doing. It doesn't just require sales data. It often is like, okay, well, how's the sales team doing? How are the prospects of the sales team talking to? How are they using the product? What kind of marketing engagement do they have? You know, are they interacting with their support team? You start to answer questions that are that are these various sort of cross-departmental questions uh, rather than everything sort of being siloed in its, in its functional unit. So, you know, it's, I think it's a much sort of generally better way of working. It's a little bit more complex because you don't have like one tool to rule them all. But I think that's a reflection of the complexity of the system that, that now exists and all the things we're trying to do with, with data. Yeah, I totally, I think that's a really good summary, um, both the sort of longer term and the shorter term. I think this is a really good segue into talking also about how org structures have changed in this aspect and what the role of the data person or mm-hmm. the data team or the the BI team or, or something, how that plays in there. And I think along with the transition from vertical to horizontal, obviously DBT is on a fast rise right now. And also the role, there's a new role in town mm-hmm. called analytics engineer. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that role? I have. I've heard of it. It's really interesting. It's something that sort of... Um, I had maybe heard of it, you know, here and there, maybe it would be an alternative version of a data engineer or something, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's different from a data engineer and it's just been popping up more and more. It started popping up more and more in the last couple of years. And now I feel like every company is hiring an analytics engineer, which is probably, you know, you you called it a data translator (laughs) or Harvard Business Review called it a data translator. Um, It's a person that speaks tech, but works particularly towards translating data to insights for different aspects of the company. Mm-hmm. So this was a, a rant I was on a couple weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> like I, it is, I think there's two ways that this goes to me, one of which is very good and one of which is, is sort of dangerous. The, so, so my take on the analytics engineer generally is it is a good development in that data engineers are often building applications, they're often they're they're responsible for like a lot of very technical infrastructure that is often complex and and requires the kind of like like computer science foundations. Not no no you don't have to be a computer scientist by any means, but but you are building applications um, and doing development in the sense of a product developer, indexing tables and distributed computing and 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 even yeah beyond yeah stuff where it's like okay we need to build a system that can process data that does all these different things we need to build all the tests and and do all those sorts of things that is the same as what you would be doing if you were building a production system. Like what a data engineer is a production system. An analytics engineer is, there is now, especially with all of these rise of these tools, there's a bunch of man- like tool management that has to happen. That is, it is not just sort of being like an IT administrator. It's building ways to connect these tools together and make them all work. So say you want to ingest data from Fivetran, you want to format that data in your warehouse, you want to write that data to uh, Salesforce again you're not building sort of full-on applications in that sense, but you're managing a lot of like very technical, very complicated processes 
that don't quite feel like what a lot of data engineers are going to want to do because they want to be building applications, but don't quite feel like what a lot of analysts who are mostly trained in SQL and, and sort of like functional Python, like functional in like a lowercase sense, like functional Python to be able to like write scripts, but aren't sort of application builders. And so the data en- uh, analytics engineering fills this nice gap of maintaining a lot of the systems and building a lot of the systems that, that require this kind of translation. That The data engineer largely works with data as a machine generates it, an analyst largely works with data that as a business understands it. And an analytics engineer's job is to basically take data that a machine generates and figure out a way to format it in a place that the analyst can actually understand it for business purposes. And I think that's like a valuable translation. The thing that I think is tricky here is there is some danger of it becoming a gradient to me where analysts see their job as sort of, there is a technical path of like, I go from an analyst, I learn some technical skills, I become an analytics engineer. I go further and I become a data engineer. These things are all like a spectrum of the technicalness of my job. And so by to up-level, I basically learn more technical skills. Mm. You see this in some places where, where there are places where people are sort of transitioning this way. Or people are transitioning from analyst, analytics engineer, or analytics engineer, data engineer. The problem with that to me is I think analytics and like the job of an analyst is a fundamentally not technical job. Like your job is not to technology can be helpful. Learning SQL can be helpful. Learning Python can be helpful. But what your job is actually do is answer questions with data. And you don't need technology to do that or to do that well. Like you need to be able to think about problems. You need to be able to look at a business problem, understand kind of the nuances of that problem, come up with creative questions to figure out how do we think about this. That's not a technical skill set. And and I think the more that we, if, the, if an analytics engineer makes technical skill sets bleed further into analytics, I think what that does is it attracts more technical people to the field where it's like, oh, to be an analyst, you have to learn all these things and distracts from the fact that being an analyst is actually just about thinking about problems in creative ways. If it becomes a, a sort of a barrier between, okay, these are the people who bridge the gap between data engineer and analyst, and a lot of ways analysts can focus just on the problem-solving part, I think that's a really valuable thing because then we can hire a lot more people into analytics jobs that don't have technical backgrounds. They can learn the SQL they need on the job but you can hire social scientists, you can hire historians, you can hire political scientists, you can hire people with backgrounds who are like looking at problems and thinking about them creatively, not people who are coming from, well, I learned a bunch of Python in my physics PhD. The thing I want to be able to do is write Python. Solving business problems is sort of secondary. And so it's like, as I think a useful thing to have happen, but it's, there's to me some question of which path is actually going to go. Yeah. I really like, like that positioning. And I think, um, so I've often talked about this both on previous episodes of The Right Track and also just with anyone who cares, <laughs> which is maybe like mistakes that people do or make when they are building out data teams. And so, you know, what what's your take on what should the early data team look like and how should it develop? Uh, the classic data engineer or data analyst uh, hire. Or data scientist, which yeah. often is like a hugely misleading term. And Yeah, and that's, that's a whole other can of worms, really, of like, what is a data scientist? Is it someone who's you know, writing machine learning production code all the time or someone who's just answering business questions or someone who's answering business questions with machine learning? My answer to, to like, who do you hire first in the early days, it, it's frustrating. It's basically, it depends. <laughs> Like everybody says, it's the chicken or egg problem, right? Like, can an analyst do anything without data? No, but can an analytics engineer or a data engineer, is it of any use to hire one of those people without an analyst to actually do something with it? Not really. I think that, that especially with the new set of tooling, where you don't have to actually have a data engineer to implement a lot of things. Like, 
you can get a full-on data stack implemented with somebody who has no real technical background because it's a bunch of copy and paste things from docs and stuff like that. It's not hard to set most of it up. But it's useful to have some, like, that's scary, frankly. And so, like, you want someone who's comfortable doing it. But because of that, you don't actually have to have, like, a full-on data engineer. I think it depends on what other skill sets you have. So if you are a company that tends to be fairly analytically oriented, like, I imagine both of our companies are like that. There are probably people who come from data backgrounds who are comfortable thinking about data. I think in those cases, it's better to hire someone like an analytics engineer initially to own the stack so that you're building the right infrastructure from Go that can say, okay, look, everybody knows how to kind of consume this thing. We just need to get the pieces in place so that the two PMs we have who are already pretty capable of this can get the data they need. Our CEO, who actually is a former data scientist, can get the data they need. You know, our, our salesperson who used to sell these data products can get the data they need. If those people are capable of that, then great. Just have someone who's, who's responsible for managing the stack and making sure all the data is like where it needs to be. If you don't have that, I think it makes more sense to hire an analyst who can do a little bit of the analytics engineering stuff because then you have a consumer who can basically guide like the product development of your analytics stack. They're able to figure a lot of those things out. It's like throwing a little bit in the deep end of do this stuff. But I think there's enough resources out there that the thing that is more valuable that they can't learn on the job is what do I want as a consumer of this tool? It was like, okay, I'm an analyst. I know I need to answer these questions. I understand the business stakeholder problems. There's a bunch of tools and resources out there to help me do it. I can probably figure that out. And if I have some like a little bit of technical help from engineers to implement segment or whatever, great, I can do that. The point I think is really you need, you need in either case someone to own it. And if you have people who are already able to be the consumers, I think the thing you need to own is the, the stack. If you have nobody who's actually a consumer, the consumer is better positioned to be the owner. Mm-hmm. And you have to like hire that consumer to actually be the owner. Yeah, that's a really, I, I think that's a good framing. And then maybe a good sort of just point to drop in here because you've sort of touched on it. If you are that person, what is the first thing you should do? Get something from end to end. Yeah, I, I think it's basically spin up the basic thing end to end. And so really to me, this is spin up a warehouse, probably like Redshift is the easiest. You know, if you're using AWS, just use Redshift. If you're using GCP, use BigQuery. Snowflake, I think, is in a lot of cases like a better tool long term, frankly, but all of them are good. And Snowflake requires you to actually go talk to Snowflake salespeople and stuff like that, which not that they're bad to talk to, but you can't just do it by yourself. And Redshift, you can set up an AWS account and set up Redshift in 20 minutes. So set up a database, start writing data to that database. You know, Stitch is, has like a free version for small amounts of data, five trend you can do, I think, without talking to people. Maybe they may require you to go through a sales process. But like these tools will let you start writing the data quickly. Segment has free versions. You can implement Segment. There are free tools uh, that let you actually start analyzing it. So Mode will connect to Redshift. Uh, we have a free product. Like You can do that all from Go. I think it's better to basically say, all right, the thing I want to be able to do by the end of the week is have a dashboard of something and it doesn't really matter what yeah a specific question ideally yeah and something super simple don't make it like don't just make it like i want to look at how many people are coming to our site every day or how many opportunities do we have in salesforce or something that's not that like it's not some critical business question it's just saying okay we now have this thing and like you can do that that i've done a, a presentation actually where you can do this in half an hour where there's a, I have like a, a presentation i've done where i've done the whole thing live from end to end. And you could actually have a dashboard set up in like 45 minutes. Nice. Obviously, like I knew the, th- the way to get there, but 
the thing that to me is like frustrating is when you talk to people who are like, okay, we're going to do this and it's going to be a three month project to be able to get this stuff running. It's like, just get it up and, and you will figure out plenty of problems along the way. It's not going to be perfect, but all these tools scale reasonably well. You're not building something that you're going to have to tear down. You're building something you're going to have to fortify, but you don't actually need to change any of that. And so, but you're not going to know what you need to change. You're not going to know what works for your business until you actually start doing it. And you also can actually kind of answer questions already. Like if you don't know how many people are logging on your site every day, you can now say that. And that's actually pretty meaningful. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and then as a follow-up of this, particularly because you were talking about BI tools, which is sort of, I guess like BI is, it's almost a stigmatized word for me because when I was hiring for the data team at QuizUp, you know, I would get applications maybe from people who would consider themselves to be BI experts or or analysts, but they would come from the old world of BI. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be something like a centralized BI team. They would report to the CFO and they have potentially no product data, for example, and they sort of speak an entirely different language. So would love to use this sort of opportunity that we've talked about the industry change. How do you see the modern org structure? Um, I typically ask this as like, what's your org structure? And I'd definitely be curious to hear that. But because you have insights into a lot of different org structures, I am curious to hear how you sort of see the org structure and how it's changed over the last 10 years, probably. Mm-hmm. Our org structure is a little bit funny because of some of the particularities of, of mode, um, which I can get into. I generally am a believer until you get to a certain size of a centralized data org where you have data teams that are responsible for basically all of the data infrastructure. So they would data engineers or data or analytics engineers would report through them. And then analysts are a part of that centralized team that are potentially specializing. Like they aren't, it isn't the, they sit in the departments, they don't report up through marketing or sales. They may be an analyst on the data team that is primarily working with marketing or sales, but are, are still centralized in that way. And I, I like, I have a preference for that for a couple reasons. Um, I think it's one that a lot of analytics becomes cross-departmental, where as a marketing analyst, you actually need to understand how people use the product. You need to understand what the sales funnel looks like and how it's performing. And you're not going to get that if you're siloed in a department. And I don't think the kind of like guild or center of excellence approach that like the McKinsey folks talk about really works, at least until you get to a certain size. Like, Can you elaborate on what that means to you? Um, so the ways I've seen people do it is, say they will have analysts that work there's a marketing analyst that reports to the marketing people. There is a sales analyst that reports to the sales team. There's a product analyst that reports to the product team. They have some kind of... This is the Spotify model. Yeah. They have some way to bring those folks together to say, okay, let's like learn from one another and things like that. I'm sure you can get that right. And, and like Spotify has a very successful data team that they seem to have done it. But I think that's... Until you get to a certain scale, that's very hard to do. What ends up happening is analysts mostly feel kind of isolated and they don't get the professional development they want. They don't actually get the exposure to other things. Like you're not going to get that from having a 30 minute meeting once a week with other people who are analysts, where you're kind of like tell each other what we're working on. And you aren't going to be amplifying each other in your tool sets and in your knowledge and all those things. Yeah. And so there's well, once you're to potentially like Spotify size, if you are a collection of six analysts that are on the marketing team, but you can work with each other. Okay, I think you can get a lot of like that. And a lot of this is also, it's professional development. It's like things for the analysts themselves, where it's very isolating to be in a role by yourself on a team that isn't, you know, doesn't sort of do the things you do. I also think it prevents some 
you feeling like your job is to promote the marketing team? Like as an analyst, your job should be to be a fairly neutral observer to the thing to help people make decisions. I think analysts can go too far with that and can become kind of like smarmy jerks about, I have the data and I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. Um, We aren't the best at bedside manner, but I, I think it is the ideal is someone who isn't part of the product or marketing or sales or whatever team and feel like that is their tribe. Like they should feel like, they're able to sort of speak candidly about how they move up. So as for mode, our, our structure is more or less that today. I am I am more sort of open to some of like embedded analyst structure at mode, in part because a lot of the people who work at mode are very data inclined. Hmm. That's the nature of what we do. People who join mode are people who are interested in data. Uh, and so I think we want to be able to support the things that they're able to do. That they're, There's a lot of people at mode who aren't necessarily analysts, but are very capable of being analysts part-time and would be capable of being analysts full-time if they didn't have other jobs. So like most of Node's PMs are people who have backgrounds as analysts. And so in that environment, like there is a little bit more of a need to say, hey, you're not a part of the team because you have other responsibilities and other teams you report to, but we should be serving you as kind of one of these satellite analysts because you have the capacity to do that. You want to do that. You have the domain expertise that you can answer questions better than we can about some things because you know the product and stuff really well. Or in this case, we have sales ops, people like that, stuff like that. I think in that case, it would be foolish for us to say, no, everything has to be centralized. If you're not on the team, you're not an analyst. Like these people very much can be, we just have to give them sort of the tooling and the infrastructure to do it. And so, you know, there are, there are reasons why I think different structures make sense for different teams. But for the most part, my bias is towards the centralized one. In our case, we just happen to have a lot of people who are capable of doing this. And so, it looks a little bit different. I suspect, mm-hmm. you know, in a company like Figma, which is building design software, they probably can think about their design team somewhat differently because I imagine a lot of people who work at Figma are very design oriented and, and mm-hmm. you know, they have a lot of design talent, I suspect, across the board. Mm-hmm. Mode's sort of similar on the data side. Yeah, that's a good point. But it sounds like the, the short version, centralized with domain spokes, is how you framed it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. And I think that is sort of how it is trending. You have a centralized team that supports professional development and almost acts as similar to like a staff engineer would act. So they support other analysts in doing their jobs. Mm -hmm. And then you might have analysts that are specialized in specific domains in the company, be it like finance or product or marketing or sales. I definitely though see also a development where when you have the hybrid model or or if you have the integrated model and maybe particularly focusing on that hybrid model, it's interesting how the analysts actually work with the teams. And for example, with the product team, because they are changing the product and thus changing the data behind the product freaking every day or at least every two weeks. And so I'd be curious to hear, you know, how do you recommend analysts work with product teams to stay in the loop on like what is going to happen next and support the product team properly. In any model, regardless of it's centralized or not, you have to still be invested in building relationships with other teams. You can't be a centralized ivory tower. Yeah. And and you certainly can't show up and and expect to the smarmy jerk part. You certainly <laughs> can't expect to show up and be like, I have the data, let me tell you how to do this. I'm going to do sort of like drive-by analytics and not invest in understanding your problems or, or even more of like the social side of just building the relationship and the trust of the people that you're working with. So even if you're centralized, you report to someone else and that sort of thing, like you still have to have a personal relationship with folks. You still have to be able to work with them on a regular basis. That, that It just doesn't work in a kind of 
consulting style, like actual consulting style thing where you show up and, and be like, here's our recommendations. We're going to piece. So, so part of it is just like being involved. Mm-hmm. That said, I think there is a corollary to that that I think is, is actually just having a conversation with someone about this today that I think a lot of teams try to underinvest in basically, which is sometimes that just means you got to have more people. There is a sense to me of like, Analytics teams say, hey, we want our company more data-driven. We want to be thinking about the things you're describing of we need to be on top of these changes in the product. We want to be making product like data-driven product decisions, all that kind of stuff. The way that we'll do that is we can keep our team small and then we'll invest in building self-serve tools and things like that. And other people will be able to do the stuff they need. I think that's kind of a failed notion. Like self-serve is good for providing people the sort of monitoring and dashboards and stuff they might need. But to actually be helping people solve problems or to be making sure everything is up to date with sort of the changing land changing underneath people's defeat, you have to have people in the room. Like analysts have to be involved. If it, and so I think that requires just, you have to have enough people to do it. You have to have enough people such that analysts aren't spread so thin that they have a once every two week check-in with the product team for 30 minutes. And that's it. Like it's not going to work that way. Exactly. And I think there's, there is this kind of pipe dream that we can hire or build self-serve tools and get away with that. <laughs> and I think that's, that part is wrong. We don't have to go out and hire like a bunch of super expensive data scientists but if you want to be like really involved in product decision making, you got to invest the time such that people are really involved in product decision making. We don't do this in other fields. If we want to have a very design-driven product, we don't say, well, let's buy the best design tools and we'll be done. It's let's hire a bunch of designers so that designers can be involved in every project. And if you want to have a really data-driven product, then you don't say, let's go hire a, or buy a, a self-serve tool. You say, let's go hire data people so that data people can be involved in every product. And if they don't have the time for it, you don't have enough. Mm-hmm. There's not like this crazy silver bullet solution to this. It's just like the solution is the obvious one, which is you invest in it. If you want to be data-driven, you spend the money on being data-driven and then you get it. If you don't, then mm-hmm. you can't really complain about not being able to do the thing that you're not willing to spend money on. Yeah, totally. And so in a good team where an analyst work with product teams on planning and releasing analytics around features, how does that process, what does that process look like? Who is involved in analytics for feature releases, planning it, impl- implementing it, queuing it, analyzing it, prioritizing feature based on data? So I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on who, like, on the team would be. Like, I think it's just someone who has that view and is is thinking about the problem from that way. It's it's similar to how do you plan a, a product release? How do you plan the messaging around it? How do you plan the marketing around it? How do you plan the release strategy? How do you plan the way we talk about it internally and externally? You just have a product marketer involved. I, what kind of product market doesn't really matter. The, the point is there is somebody there who's responsible for thinking about all those things. And when you're having a weekly meeting about this product, they're the one who's thinking about it from this perspective. And if they see a thing that it's like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. We were talking about it this way and now we're building something that doesn't fit or whatever, they can raise their hand and say, hey, we need to do this differently. And, and you know, they have, they have the same ability to, to pull the Toyota stop the line thing <laughs> that everybody else does yeah. to say, hey, we need to solve this. And they are a part of the team just like everybody else. Yeah, that's a cross-functional thing. You need someone from the yeah from the data perspective, like someone who's saying, hey, we're not tracking this, or we don't know how we're going to measure it, or we're measuring it, but it's not actually measuring the way we thought it would, or like all those sorts of things. They're just the person in the room who's thinking about it from this perspective. Mm-hmm. And so is it an analytics engineer? Is it an analyst? Is it a data engineer? Probably depends on the project. I think typically someone who understands how to consume the data is usually more helpful because a data engineer is just like, yep, we're tracking it all according to the spec. That's good. <laughs> the spec may not actually be useful, <laughs> but really it's just like, there needs to be someone who's who's in the meeting to think about it from this angle, as opposed to it being like a PM's kind of secondary job to periodically think about it. 
and then tell the analysts when they're done and hope for the best. Yes, I couldn't agree more. So I think that's a really important aspect of this, similar to with the product marketing and with the design. It needs involvement from all of the key stakeholders of the product. It needs an analyst, it needs a product manager, typically needs an engineer as well. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that's spot on. Side note, I love those New York City uh, sirens that just passed by your window. (laughs) Yeah, you know, can only do so much in a New York City recording studio. Uh, that's really good. Well, thank you so much for sharing those insights. I appreciate that. Maybe quickly on like on that culture building as well. Mm-hmm. Data trust is such a huge, huge, huge issue. And I know that you've written about social analytics. And I, I think that perspective touches a little bit on that. It's like it's very difficult to build data trust if you don't under really understand both the domain and the data itself. Mm-hmm. But I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about like why do people say I don't trust this data? I mean there's there's a cynical answer to that and there's there's a less cynical answer to that. I think the cynical answer is and, and this is the answer that like an analyst will give you when they're they're bitter about someone not listening to them is because it tells them something they don't want to believe. That it's like, I don't trust it because we researched this product and I'm pretty sure it'll still be useful and I know that people aren't using it the way we wanted it to, but I don't trust that it's telling us it's not valuable, like we'll get there or something will change or whatever. And like there, there is like motivated reasoning behind that. And I think, okay, yeah, to some extent, I think that's true. I think in product development, that's probably more true than anything else. Um, less about like, not trusting the data to be telling them what is actually happening, but more about you see a lot of mousetrap features, which is a term that I've completely made up, <laughs> which are features that that people will say won't work until the whole thing is built. Mm. Like this is like an intelligent design thing. There are people who are like anti-evolution who basically say there are certain parts of a body that are like mousetraps where like you have to build the whole thing for it to work. So it couldn't have possibly evolved because there's no iterative way to get there. And I think that that there are some product features that people will say like, well, okay, I know we built the 50% version. Of course, nobody liked it. We didn't do this other thing for it. Once we have that, it'll work. And it's sort of this, the whole thing, nothing works until the whole thing works. And it's really, I think, a little bit of a way to dismiss the early signals that you get from data that something isn't being used as much or as the way you thought it would by saying like, well, of course it's not. It'll only be there once the whole thing is done. And I don't think there's, I don't think that's necessarily wrong but every bit of evidence you get from the data is some evidence that's saying you might be. And so over time, you're kind of like faith in whatever your initial hypothesis is should erode. And I think people, you know, for reasons, because they, they believe in it, because they've heard it from users, because they're personally invested in building it, whatever. I mean, these are all like, you know, valid human reasons. They may not necessarily trust it to tell them what other people may think it's child. The bigger problem, the one that I think is like the more fundamental thing is data just is going to tell you different things and it's going to look different in different perspectives. And I think you have to work really hard for people not to look at something and say, this is telling me two different things, therefore I don't trust anything. And and people are very perceptive to these small differences that make them not trust it. So the, the like analogy I've used with this before is, say you look out a window and I look out a window and we see 95% the same thing, but I see a tree that you don't see, like suddenly we both start completely questioning the entire nature of our reality. Like we're like, what in the world is going on? We should be looking at the same thing. And yes, it's mostly the same, but like, how come I can see one thing that you can't? Something is way off. My entire world is upside down now. And I think like data is kind of like that, where even if it's pretty consistent, this one thing is off. These one numbers don't look the same. This one release wasn't tracked the same way in this other thing. The way I track the win rate as a sales rep is different than the way you track the win rate. And I have my numbers, you have your numbers. So I don't trust these things because something's off. Like all those little discrepancies, I think, make it hard for people to just kind of 
take it as reality. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard thing to overcome because mm-hmm. data is nuanced in a way that there is no reality. There is no real win rate necessarily. There's like the win rates that are the verdict. Like there's my definition, there's your definition, there's all these different definitions. There isn't one that's real. Like does win rate count nonprofits? I don't know. Like it could, it couldn't. Um, and I could count it, you could not. And we have a different number and they're both correct, but they're both different. And to me now reality is different and I don't trust anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's like as a data team, you have to work really hard to overcome basically the notion that there is no objective truth here and that people are going to kind of look for that. And when they see something that doesn't look like that, they're going to become really distrustful of the thing that you've done. And so you have to do a lot of work to kind of counter that and to get people to, to trust it inherently, even though it's like sort of a, a difficult thing to trust. Yeah, I relate to those two key things. I think data literacy is basically one aspect of that, understanding that there are nuances and it depends on how you look at the data, what you'll actually find from it. And then sort of the discoverability and having some sort of a definition for like how different teams would be viewing the data. I think that's a really good good way of framing it. And that's actually, I've never kind of liked that particular spin. Is I've never... Data literacy is one of those things we talk about a lot. I think people tend to talk about it a lot as like you understand kind of where data comes from or how to analyze it or you understand outliers or you understand bias or things like that. Probably a, a almost more important skill in data literacy is understanding that there is no sort of ground truth in it, that it's hmm. you need to accept that there will be differences, there will be wiggles, there will be things that are immeasurable and stuff like that. And it's like knowing kind of what it can and can't do that I think people look at data and it's like, it's a number, it's exactly trustworthy or if it's not. And it's kind of like, that's eh, not really like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is maybe, we're here touching on your arguments for why self-serve analytics is a pipe dream. <laughs> for readers, Ben has a really, uh, at least two great blog posts on self-serve analytics that I really recommend reading. <laughs> um, my favorite one, or one of my favorite quotes from it at least is when, you sort of painted this picture of an analyst that just really, really wants to just sit around and answer questions all day, <laughs> which I sort of relate to a little bit. Some people enjoy it. This <laughs> is interesting. But the point being, people are at different capabilities to be able to do that. And they need context. They need to understand data and they need to understand business context as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's... The root problem I have with self-serve analytics is, well, I guess there's kind of two. One is it's actually not, there are two ways you can kind of think about it. And we often, I think, are trying to provide the thing that people don't actually want. That when people are at, like business users are asking for self-serve, I think most of the time what they're actually asking for is they want to look up a bunch of metrics. They're like, I want to know what our win rate is. I want to know what our revenue is. I want to know how many product people are using this product. And I want to filter it by some dimensions and things like that. That's not analytics in the way like an analyst would think of it. Like an analyst would think of, hey, here's a question. Why is our win rate down this quarter? Okay, we're going to go do a bunch of research to figure that out. That's not really what most self-serve things are are doing. Like if if a CEO has that question of why is our win rate down, they're not like, oh, great, I'm going to poke around my BI tool to try to figure this out myself. And then I'm going to go make a decision without talking to anybody. They're mostly just want to see that the win rate is down and then maybe do like a very cursory well, is it down across all the regions? Uh, okay, yeah. Is it down across segments? Uh, oh, it's just SMB. All right, I'm going to go talk to my SMB sales manager and be like, what's up? Like, mm-hmm. That's not really analysis so much in the way that analysts do it. And so I think like self-serve really is this kind of narrowly, more na- should be a more narrowly scoped thing for helping people just like extract data they need. The other part is it's getting back to the part about like an analytics isn't a fundamentally technical job. There is a skill set that analysts have that is figuring out why your win rate is down this month that is hard. It is hard to do that. Like 
it's not something that nobody can do. It's not you're not like born with it, but it's you just practice solving those problems for a long time and you get better at it. And the problem is not that analysts need to learn how to write SQL and they need a tool that like anybody that has a tool that can abstract away SQL will suddenly be able to do this. The problem is like answering this kind of confusing, ambiguous business question with a bunch of data that doesn't really directly address it is a really hard thing to do. And so just by giving people a self-serve tool does not enable them to do that. Again, kind of going back to the design thing, you know, if you want to be good at design, you hire a bunch of designers. Why? Because giving me a tool to design a website means I can put pixels on a page, but it doesn't mean I'm going to make something that looks good or is functional. Like I, my skill set I'm missing to be a designer is not that I don't have the technical ability to drag and drop stuff around a page. I'm sure I can find a tool that helps me do that. My skill set is I don't understand how to be a designer. Yeah. And analytics is no different. But self-serve, we kind of treat it as though all I need to give you is a technology and then you'll magically be able to do this. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, totally. Both skill set and also just time. Those are things that take time. It takes time to design good products and it takes time to really understand answers to questions. And most people don't want to do it. Like, I don't, you know, like, what they don't want to do is they don't want to bother somebody. Mm. That doesn't mean they want to do the job. There's a difference between saying, like, I don't want to have to go through the frustration of asking somebody else and waiting forever to saying, I, I want to do this. Yeah. If I'm a salesperson, what I want to be doing is I want to be talking to customers and selling. I don't want to be spending three days doing analysis. Yeah. Totally. If I want to do that, I'd probably have a job. Exactly. Amazing. Um, we had very deep conversations on wi- a wide variety of subjects. So we took a good over an hour talking. I love it. I really appreciate your time. Would love to wrap this up with maybe you talking about what is the one thing that you wish more people knew about data and product, even though we've already covered many, many things you wish people knew about data and product. I think some of the stuff is the stuff that, that we've already covered. Like if you're thinking about building data teams and product teams to be you know, oriented around data, I think it's recognizing like the skill that is a data skill and the skill that isn't. The skill that isn't isn't technical skills. It's not, you know, it's helpful, but it's not what makes a data team great. It's not what makes someone a great partner to a product team or a PM a great data person. Isn't that they need to go learn Python or go through some tutorial on you know, data science fundamentals or whatever. A lot of it just comes from asking questions, really like being willing to dig in those questions, being really curious, kind of having this like relentless curiosity around, I need to understand what this is. And if I see something that looks weird, I'm going to try to understand why that looks weird. Like that's really to me where you get the value in all of this. And so, you know, I think if people are thinking about building products where they want to be data oriented, it's not going to come from, okay, I have a bunch of dashboards. That's helpful. And that's going to give you a much better sense of kind of the, the world around you and that's very useful and like you absolutely should do it but you're not this example from the knot or the example you described from your own experiences about the banners and stuff that people had and the, the awards that doesn't come from a dashboard that comes from someone who's curious who sees something that looks a little bit weird who wants to understand why that is and keeps like asking the next question the next question the next question until they get like oh wait a minute now i'm starting to connect these dots that doesn't happen overnight. Like it's, it's something that just requires a, a lot of digging. And I think for some people, that's very much the fun part. Like I, I enjoy that. There's a lot of people who enjoy just like seeing something that they're curious about, trying to figure it out. Uh, but that's what it takes. And so I think, you know, again, it's, you can't sort of buy the right tools to be data driven or whatever. Like they can help you. But really, it's about, it's about having that kind of mindset about asking questions, about being curious about the answers, about trying to connect dots and, and seeing, you know, being willing to sort of see if you're right or wrong on this stuff. I love that. I think we could even add that into like uh, what is a fundamental trait of a good analyst is 
they are curious. <laughs> One of the challenges in all of this is it's easy for me to say like what an analyst isn't. It's like not the skills that are required. It's like, yes, there, you need to know SQL and Python sometimes, but it's not, that's not the defining skill. It seems very hard to define what actually makes a good analyst. I mean, it's like some sense of curiosity, some sense of sort of analytical reasoning, which is kind of begging the question of what an analyst is, kind of like an inductive reasoning, ability to connect dots, I don't know, see patterns, but all that's pretty fuzzy. But I don't have a better answer than that. But it's like the people who are, who are kind of detectives is the best I can come up with. <laughs> I love that. 100%. Thank you so much for your time on the right track, Ben. It was uh, really informative. It was great to listen to you expand on uh, so many things that you. I know you've already written about many of these things before and talked about them before. So for anyone listening, I really recommend you go check out Ben's blog. And it was an honor having you, Ben. I hope we can have a part two. I know we could probably talk for many, many, many more hours. So look forward to next time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for listening to The Right Track. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in The Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app. And please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via AvoHQ.